The following message is entitled, Hourglass Mercy Power Unleashed, Part 4. This message was given during the morning service on September 18, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. Just a reminder, I'm in the first Timothy passage again today, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, because it's the middle Sunday of the month, I just arbitrarily am teaching the Gospel of John verse by verse on the first Sunday of the month, uh, Titus chapter 2 on the last Sunday of the month in the morning sermons, and then the middle Sundays of the month, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 verse by verse through this epistle. The reason I'm doing this is I spent so long in one passage that I want to expose you to other things in the Word of God than just in one area every sermon. As the note sheet says, for those that are present, I've entitled 1 Timothy, The Kind of Church God Wants. He determines what the church is because he's the Lord of the church. And he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not withstand it. It's his church, it's universal. It's his church locally right here. Elders are not the owners or rulers of this church. They're simply the chief servants and slaves under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So the Spirit of God is teaching us what he wants for any local church. This is about a local church and how they operate more than the universal. And the priorities that God, through First Timothy, this epistle, through Paul writing to Timothy, the priorities are far different than what we learn and what's going on in the American uh, supposed Bible-believing church today. You can just look at priority number one in your outline. The entire first chapter deals with God wanting true teachers and pure doctrine in his churches. In the first 20 verses, this is the exact opposite of what evangelicalism is doing today. Gutting their teaching services, gutting their worship services, replacing it with music and other things. In fact, it is so blatantly rebellious that when you look at evangelicalism, and as we look at the roughly nine priorities of a local church in this epistle, you see that the American Bible-believing church, so-called, is choosing to willfully do the exact opposite of every one of these priorities. If our children did that, we would call them just blatant rebels. Now, in your note sheet, we're still kind of working through this introduction, and we're in verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, remember that the Spirit of God doesn't say things like, hi, how are you doing, good morning, which means nothing. When Paul starts off with grace, mercy, and peace, he's giving us the divine virtues that empower not only a local church, but every true believer in those churches. We've seen in your note sheet, Roman numeral one, that God's true servant, the Apostle Paul, we looked at his life. Letter B under Roman numeral one, the Apostle's true servant is Timothy. We looked at him as a troubled pastor. We can all probably, as elders or pastors, relate more than to Timothy than to Paul. We did an in-depth study of nine major sins in his life that are mentioned in First and Second Timothy. These are extremely serious sins. One of them comes up right away, as we've already seen in verse 3, where Paul is urging. The idea in the Greek is to beg Timothy to not quit. He had quitting on his mind continuously. And uh, Paul had to exhort him to remain at Ephesus. He wanted to quit and get out. So we studied Timothy's life. We determined uh, how much can a leader sin and not be disqualified, and what's the difference between sins that disqualify for any Christian and sins that do not disqualify 
And why did Timothy not get called out by Paul to resign from the ministry? Um, so we looked at that. That, for me, was a fascinating study personally. And now let us see under Roman numeral one, the great trilogy empowering God's servants. We've looked at grace, unmerited favor, and we're now into mercy. And that's why there's the hourglass there. Most Christians, as I've told you in this series, believe that God's mercy is always and forever unconditional. It is not. So the hourglass represents God's mercy. Because scripturally, there are aspects of God's mercy that are conditional. There are aspects of God's mercy that are unconditional. There's a time limit to God's mercy for the lost, and there's a time limit for God's mercy towards believers. That's what we're studying. And it's the second virtue in verse 2. Again, this isn't some flippant, trite little aphorism statement like, good morning, what's happening? Grace, mercy, and peace is not just, all right, let's just get these intros out of the way. These are the powerhouses of a Christian's life. We live by grace, we live by mercy, and when we're living by grace and mercy, one of the primary manifestations of the power of God in our lives is peace, one of the fruit of the Spirit. The first two virtues, we tap to receive sanctifying power. The third virtue, peace, is the result and evidence that I'm living in grace and living in mercy. We already saw that to live and walk by grace means to walk by faith. Just as Ephesians 2.8 tells unbelievers that you are saved, you need to be saved by grace through faith. So as we were saved by grace through faith, that's how we walk by faith. Legalism and licentiousness destroy that. We looked at various attacks against grace in previous lessons, and now we're into mercy. Let's review the lessons that we're learning from mercy, the first five in your note sheet. Lesson number one, the hourglass of mercy in Saul. There is no mercy for an apostate, so the hourglass is turned sideways for an apostate. Saul was an apostate. He wasn't a true believer. And we looked at textual evidence to support that. So there was no mercy for him. Lesson number two that we studied, the hourglass of mercy in Jehoshaphat. I chose him because he was a true believer that backslid. And in, at the point of his backsliding, he looked just like Saul. So we had to see what is the distinction between Saul and Jehoshaphat. And we studied that. But we also learned that chastisement awaited Jehoshaphat in his rebellion. So as it says under lesson number two, there's no mercy for rebellious believers without repentance. It was only when Jehoshaphat cried out that he received mercy. Lesson number three, what is the hourglass of mercy? What does that mean? There's a time limit to God's mercy. He doesn't tell us when that limit has been achieved. There's no bomb that goes off. There's no trumpet from heaven that is said to a rebellious believer, time's up, mercy ends. So how would we ever know if the hourglass of mercy for us as true believers is run out. That was lesson four that we studied. You can only tell when mercy is run out by observing the evidences in a believer's life of rebellion. And those evidences are twofold that we saw. God chastises a true believer, and chastisement is the evidence that mercy has run out. And secondly, the marks of rebellion. I gave you about ten marks of rebellion. If a Christian partakes of any of those ten marks, they're in rebellion, and God's mercy has begun to run out. So the evidence that I am out from under his mercy is if he's chastising us. And the first evidence of chastisement, as we studied, 1 John chapter 4, uh, 
we won't go there. And Hebrews chapter 10 tells us as well as a loss of assurance of salvation. That is the consistent loss of assurance of salvation is the evidence that I'm in rebellion before God. Lesson 5 that we finished last time. Just to remind you what mercy here in verse 2 is. Elias, it's pity and compassion upon those who deserve to be judged or chastised. That's a very dangerous definition because we can abuse that definition and twist it into an unbiblical idea. So we have to, in some of these later lessons, 7, 8, and 9 especially, figure out how can we abuse that definition. Lesson 6 is where we currently were last time in finishing off this morning this lesson. The offer of mercy to mankind is unconditional. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. touched on this quickly, but I want to do a little bit more, rotate back towards it a little more in depth. First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, you can write down under lesson 6. First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, shows mercy. First Peter 3, 18, for Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient. They were on earth, obviously, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. This is a passage on mercy. Where is the mercy in these three verses? Go back to verse 18. Mercy number one, he died for sins. That's mercy. Okay, once for all. If you, some of you were at our neighbor's funeral, or I got to speak at the visitation, it was predominantly Catholics, if not the entire group Catholic, other than those from our church or neighbors that uh, attended from our church to go to our church here, from our block. But uh, I had an opportunity to speak to them for about eleven minutes, and. Um, I mentioned that uh, there's three branches of Christianity, if those of you that were there remember this. And I mentioned this in a Sunday night sermon a couple Sunday nights ago as well. Uh, The three branches of Christianity are uh, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant. And uh, they're like the peace sign, you know, the three arms of it that come down to the single. And they all were born out of the Bible. There would be no Christianity without the Bible. And verse 18 is a perfect example of the corruption of Catholicism over 2,000 years. Christ died for sins once for all. The reason why Christ is on an icon in Catholic churches up still on the cross is Holy Communion is a re-crucifying of Christ over and over again. And if you have to do good works to be saved, you can understand why Christ would have to be crucified over and over again. So whenever you take the three branches of Christianity, and they're all corrupted, Protestantism is no better than Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. Their only hope is if anyone within those systems returns to the original manual of it, the Bible, and here this would correct the apostasy and heresy of Catholicism through Holy Communion. He died once for all. How much plainer does it get than that? It speaks to permanence, 
and it speaks to sufficiency for anyone, anywhere. And then Christ is defined as the just. That literally is dikaios in the Greek, and it's righteous, perfectly righteous. And it's emphatic, it's just for unjust. That's why in the New American Standard, the article D in both instances is italicized. It's not in the Greek. It's just for unjust, righteous for unrighteous. So unrighteous, adakimas, which is one of the words for uh, wicked, evil, hateful. It's an absolute statement. Just as Christ is just perfectly, man is unjust. All humans are unjust. Again, attacking the very foundations of heretical Protestantism, good works, the goodness of man, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Catholicism. That's mercy number one. Mercy number two is that he may bring us to God. We can't bring ourselves to God. He must bring us to God, and we only do that through the bridge of Christ. And Christ is the only one that can bring us to God. Reject Christ, you reject all. Someone at work with the other job was talking to me, you know, about uh, Queen Elizabeth. They call that pomp and circumstance. Boy, she looks like a well-dressed stiff in a coffin, doesn't she? And as we were talking... And the idea is the opulence, the glory of the church building. Westminster Cathedral and the robes, the garments as the family takes turns standing watch for the processionals through. Where is Queen Elizabeth? She's in hell. She raised pagans. She was pagan. Wicked to the core. Church of England has apostatized so many years ago. They, they voted out back in the 1960s that there's one way to, for Christ. I'm reading a, a, a book right now by a great British uh, theologian. He's voice crying in the wilderness, and he uh, talks about the Church of England in the 1960s was systematically persecuting and kicking out all Bible-believing Christians. Hmm. Renouncing inerrancy. Renouncing the supremacy of Jesus Christ, requiring baptism to be saved. One does not receive Christ as Lord and Savior, repenting of sins to go to heaven. All religions go to heaven. That's what's going on in that funeral right now. It's all hell. They're bringing themselves to God. It's the exact opposite here. The idea here is he must escort us to the Father. And the only way he brings us to God is what comes next. Mercy number three, having put to death in the flesh. He had to die in our place for our sins and then rise again from the dead, conquering death and sin, made alive in the spirit. His lordship is shown in verse 19. Back to verse 20 in mercy. Proclaiming to those that are in prison, hell, most likely, verse 19, who once were disobedient when they were on earth. This is a mark of an unbeliever. Just permanent disobedience. There's two marks for unbelievers, all humans. Unjust or unrighteous, verse 18. And state of being 
continuously disobedient. And that's why it's such an abomination in the church today. I was talking to, uh, I think it was Tom and Eric last night, that there are two foundations of satanic doctrine. Um, Satan has fundamentals of his own twisted faith, and one of them is a supreme doctrine of Satan is a person can be a Christian and never be transformed. In other words, you can stay in a continuous state of verse 20 disobedience. There is no transformation. It is called conversion without transformation. That is from the pit of hell. This is why the Bible talks so repeatedly in the apostles in the New Testament that you need to examine yourself. 2 Corinthians 13 to see if you're in the faith because profession is how you get saved. Transformation is how you prove that you're truly saved. He didn't die for us for us to remain disobedient. They're disobedient in hell, which means if verse 19 is referring to Christ when he died on the cross, that he went into hell, and what he proclaimed to them is, I won, I'm Lord, you deserve to be here, is basically what he, he wasn't certainly preaching the gospel in hell. And what you have here then is the establishment of absolute lordship. There is no way, no way, a person is saved when they live in disobedience without repentance, without any conviction, without any desire to return to Christ. So he proclaimed himself as Lord and Master. Verse 20, more mercy. Patience is one of the aspects of God's mercy. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. How many years was Noah building that ark? 120? Preaching for 120 years, not seeing any converts. It's a good lesson for us on perseverance as a church, isn't it? Uh, we're not through yet until we've preached for 120 years the gospel. You say, hey, we've been preaching for 123 years. And... Uh, yeah, but there were a lot of converts in the past. Very few in our 10-year here. Raise your hand again if you've been here since 1987. Yeah, there you go. So you've uh, experienced the profound desert of conversions in this area all those years. It's not just me. It, it, it attacks you. It tasks your soul. It tempts all of us to give up and not give out tracts or give the gospel, right? It does that for all of us. What's the point? Right? Sadly, I've yielded to that urge many times, especially in my other job. Well, what's the point? I've done it before. They never listen. Right? We all struggle with that? Yeah. It's not right. It's just a statement of fact. So look at Noah, verse 20. Kept waiting in the days of Noah. Who's waiting, though? It says, kept waiting in the days of Noah. Who's the one waiting? God. Christ, specifically. So there is some aspect of choice here. We're chosen before the foundations of the world. We believe in foreordination, predestination. God chooses those who will be saved. But at the same time, in Ephesians 1 it says, and you chose him. It's a divine paradox. So God is waiting for choice to take place. Mercy continues. Eight persons only were brought safely through the water. That's mercy. So this is unconditional mercy. He died for sins. 
This verse 18, again, renounces the idea of Christ dying only for the elect. It's so profoundly and simply through every aspect of the New Testament, I scratch my head in confusion how anyone can believe that Jesus Christ died only for the elect as MacArthur does. Uh, pray for MacArthur. He's in trouble. Okay? Um, it isn't just that he's for years preached that Christ only died for the elect and then he has to manipulate passages. But he signed this past week, Grace Church, Grace Community, and Grace to You signed and agreed to the Frankfurt Declaration, which is an abominably heretical document. Yes, I said heretical. And they signed it. We as elders and members could never sign that document. Frankfurt Declaration. It's a ridiculous name. I guess the people who wrote the Frankfurt Declaration don't know history at all because there was an original Frankfurt Declaration in Europe in 1957 that was the promotion of communism and socialism. So why they would use that as supposed evangelicals, the essence of it is man is great. Article 3, paragraph 1 is rank heresy. Man is great, he's noble. He deserves his rights. And then it lists all the rights that we have, including vocational empowerment. And so the idea of the Declaration is we need to rebel against government until we have vocational empowerment. Really? What is MacArthur thinking? What? It's an attack against unconditionally submitting to governments in Romans 13 is what it is. He and others, mostly reformed individuals, signed this document saying basically we have a right to rebel against any government that's not moral. Good luck finding one that is. And I thought in Romans 13 that it was a Roman government in power when Paul wrote that that were to submit to government. There's other things that MacArthur is doing that are very bad that he said in sermons recently I won't go into this year. One of them is very close to Gnostic heresy. This close he has now breached towards Gnostic heresy. You see, he should have resigned at his 50th anniversary of his church ministry, and I should resign today, right? So verse 18 is Christ died for sins. Who has sins? All humans. All humans. He died for all humans. What mercy. This is a great passage on mercy, isn't it? When we're sitting here today or listening remotely, if you're saved and you've received the mercy of salvation, you didn't earn it. Article 3, paragraph 1 of the Frankfurt Declaration says, We as humanity have great worth. Direct quote. Oh, do we now? Doesn't look like there's any inherent worth here. We're not worthy of salvation. And it is not a statement that says man did have worth and inherent righteousness before the fall. It's saying he does now. How, could, how can MacArthur sign that? In a direct attack against the depravity of man and rebellion against government. Don't know. Ultimately, that's not my business. All I know is I'm not signing it. <laughs> That's so serious that if the elders came to me, they'd never do this. Let's say Ryan and Tom and Bill and Randy call an elder meeting today. We've got to sign this thing, John. <laughs> They're just hot to trot to sign the Frankfurt Declaration. 
Can't let the sun go down today unless we sign it. I'd look at them and say, you signed it, I resign. I'd like them apples. Of course, they would never do that. It's an abomination. Lesson seven, the hourglass of mercy. Lessons from the hourglass of mercy. Let's continue on. So we see unconditionality in 1 Peter 3. Died for everyone, all the reprobates. We were all that way. We didn't deserve it. We have no worth. We don't deserve vocational empowerment. We deserve to be healthy. Any government that doesn't make sure that we're healthy, we can rebel against. That's what it says in the document. Oh my goodness. What a train wreck. A fifth grade theologian could write something better than that document. So this is unconditionality in verses 18 to 20 towards all of us that are such reprobates. No worth. No worthiness whatsoever. So lesson seven, but there is a time when the hourglass runs out. Fill it in. The reception of mercy is conditional. The reception of mercy is conditional. You see the difference between six and seven? The offer is unconditional. The reception is conditional. The offer of mercy is unconditional. The reception is conditional. And thank heavens it is, or everyone goes to heaven and there's no one in hell. Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. This is for believers and unbelievers. There's a conditionality for believers. There's a condition for unbelievers. We who are saved here, we need to know what the conditions are for me to receive and you to receive mercy as believers. You're already saved. You can't lose your salvation. Isaiah 55. Verse 1, everyone who thirsts comes to the water. Verse 1, Isaiah 55, that's unconditional mercy. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine, milk, without money, without cost. That's unconditional offer of mercy. The idea here is metaphorically, you have nothing to offer God. Okay? He says in verse 2, listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Verse 3, but watch what happens. Climb your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Listen. That's a condition, isn't it? It's a direct conditional statement qualified by a command that requires obedience in order to receive the second part of the statement. Listen in order that you may live. So is listening necessary for the lost? Is listening necessary for believers to receive mercy? You bet it is. So if an unbeliever says, la, 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 I don't want to hear the gospel, I don't want to hear the gospel, but God's merciful, unconditionally, he'll save me. No, he won't. Or sitting in church, la, 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 not listening to any more sermons from Pastor John. I've had 35 years of them now. That's it. I'm not sure I'd blame you on that one. But God's unconditional. No. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Mercies. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. There's the hourglass right there. There it is. That's why I put that picture in your note sheet. There comes a time for unbelievers can no longer be found. And that time is prophetically increasing. The reason we are seeing fewer saved and wanting to hear it is wrath is increasing. God is pulling back the divine prerogatives that enable unsaved man to find him. 
Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. That's a call to repentance. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts. We repent and forsake within our thoughts. That's how we get saved. Letter A under Lesson 7. Go to Romans 11 as you fill in. Multitask here now. I know it's hard for some of you to do, but let's do it. Multitask. Fill in while you go to Romans 11. For the lost, the condition is repenting and receiving Christ by faith. That's a condition. Repent and receive Christ by faith. No, everyone does not go to heaven. Many are called, few are chosen. Romans 11. Letter A under 11, uh, Lesson 7. For the lost upon repenting and receiving Christ by faith. That's the condition for mercy. Look at verse 30. Romans 11, verse 30. For just as you once were what? What was the second primary word for unbelievers back in 1 Peter 3? The first one was unjust or akdakimas, unrighteous. What was the second term? Disobedient. There it is again, verse 30. For just as you were once. This is a mark of an unbeliever. That's why when a true believer just rolls the dice on continuous rebellion and disobedience, that's a mark of, a, of an unbeliever. And so the Spirit starts stripping assurance away because that's God saying, how could you as a believer be in such rebellion that you act in a primary mark of an unbeliever, continuous disobedience? And it's disobedience to God. But now I've been shown mercy because of their disobedience. That's still unconditional mercy, verse 30, you would say. That's unconditional, yes. Shown mercy because of their disobedience. Verse 31. So these also now have been disobedient, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles, verse 30, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. The Gentiles could be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Again, universal offer of salvation to all sinners. So you say, well, this looks like unconditional mercy. Well, it is. It is. But how do you receive that mercy? Just sit in a lazy boy and have it hit you? It's a recognition of how disobedient we are that brings salvation. Shown mercy in verse 32 is one word in the Greek, that he may show mercy to all. It must be received. This is where you have to receive the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. I, I, I beg for mercy to be saved. We're talking about unbelievers first, the lost. In your note sheet, lesson 7, letter A is the lost. And then he gets to believers in verse 12, verse 1. By the mercies of God, that we're to present. And that's the conditionality of sanctifying mercy that we'll get to next time. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 that we were just in. Go back there to our text. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. 1 Timothy 1, 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because... 
he considered me faithful, putting me into servants, even though I was formally, now describing his unbelieving wife, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Unbelief. How do you cure unbelief? By believing. So the, the offer of mercy to Paul was unconditional, but it required him believing. And that's verse 14. And the grace of the Lord was more than abundant with what? The faith and love which are found in Jesus Christ. So we must receive him by faith. That's the condition for salvation. It is conditional. Verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Verse 16, yet for this reason I found mercy. You don't just wait for it, you must receive it. The condition is repenting and receiving, as the New Testament plainly says. And then lastly this morning, letter B, for believers. We're going to finish lesson 7 today. For believers. Fill in the blanks for that one. The condition for believers is for receiving salvation, mercy, one must give mercy. One must give mercy. As a result of receiving salvation, mercy, we must give mercy. This is a major evidence that one is converted when we live in mercy. You see, the issue here that I'm trying to explain to you is mercy is not just what we received at conversion. The evidence of conversion is our giving mercy back out. It's not the only evidence of conversion, but it is in regards to mercy. It's a major tell that one is merciful because one has received mercy. This is an evidence that I'm converted. It doesn't save for the believer. They're already saved. This is an evidence. This is a condition. When you receive mercy, you give mercy. Look at Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Again, the Bible is very clear on these issues. And most Christians don't think, well, an evidence of my being truly saved and having received mercy is that I give mercy. Giving mercy doesn't save me. It's an evidence that I already am. So Matthew 18, look at verse 32. And summoning him, the Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you. Do you understand what Christ is saying with this analogy, this story, this parable about the unrighteous slave? The evidence that this slave was wicked and hell-bound is his unwillingness to return mercy to others. Do you get that? Verse 33 again. Should you not, since I forgave you all your debt... Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave? It's a cause and effect. I did this to you, this should be the effect. In the same way that I had mercy on you. Hmm. Mark 11. Mark 11. Look at verse 25 of Mark 11. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. Look at the conditions. Verse 25 again, Mark eleven twenty-five. 25. When you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, number one, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Notice that forgiveness is conditional. 
It's not unconditional. You don't just walk around saying, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. Ephesians tells us that. Um, as Christ has forgiven us, so we should forgive others. Well, Christ forgave us when we repented. So you only grant forgiveness to others when they repent. Verse 26. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. So the mercy is that God forgave us our transgressions when we received his mercy. We should forgive others. This is a major evidence that I'm a true believer. This is where in our local churches we have Christians that resent others and form factions. And in our churches today we have people that hate others and stand aloof from them and don't want to hang around them. And they did me wrong. This is a very great tell of lack of conversion. A true believer that's received mercy and forgiveness offers it up. Look at Colossians 3. Lastly, Colossians 3. Showing the evidences of true conversion in verse 12. The opposite of verse 12 is verse 9. Do not lie to one another. It's a major evidence of lack of conversion, by the way, is lying. One of the great abominations of Proverbs, it's a mark of an unbeliever, is lying and deceiving others. Have we seen in the body of Christ, the general body of Christ today among leaders and Christians in general, an increase of deception and lying? Yeah. I mean, why would we have as members and elders the rule that if you, want to become, if you start attending this church and you want to become a member, you have to attend for at least a year? Deception and lying. That's why. Lying is the mark of an unbeliever. You lie to people and you don't repent of it and deal with it with the people you've lied to, you're an unbeliever. Okay? It's a mark of the old self in verse 9. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Look at verse 12. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, converted, put on. Here's the conditionality. It's a command. Put on. Do this. Heart of compassion. Splagna. The gut. Put on a gut. Well, I've done that. I'm obedient. It's kind of an odd kind of statement. Let your heart put on a gut. Heart is mind. Gut refers to feelings of sympathy and mercy and it's called it's the term for stomach is used because splognon because you when you have feelings for someone or you're upset emotionally doesn't it churn up the stomach yeah it's a very graphic term put on a heart of compassion okay pity put on a heart of compassion pity favor grace mercy that's what it's supposed to be. So heart is gut, compassion is pity and mercy. Heart isn't really hard. It's referring to the centerpiece of your emotions. This is what we're supposed to do. It's an evidence of salvation, along with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is another fruit of the Spirit listing. It's a very important fruit of the Spirit listing because it's relational fruit. Okay, Character fruit is Galatians 5, 1 Peter as well, or 2 Peter 1. For 2 Peter 1. Galatians 5, or character fruit. Here's your major list of relational fruit that is an evidence of a true believer. A gut of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against one another, just as the Lord forgave you. How did he forgive us? It was conditional. We asked forgiveness, and then 
We received it. We asked for forgiveness and we received it. So you don't forgive somebody unconditionally at church. You love unconditionally because Luke 6.34 says love your enemies. That's unconditional. So if anybody in here is your enemy, you don't like somebody here, you are to love them unconditionally regardless of whether they change. But it's very important to realize that forgiveness is to be granted only when it is asked for through repentance. Time doesn't heal sin, folks. We all understand that? Time doesn't stop, heal your sin. It doesn't, doesn't wash it away. Only repentance does. Only repentance. So when it says forgiving each other, this is assuming what Ephesians says that I alluded to earlier. So go over there, just very quickly. Ephesians. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Now, he's going to tell you how you forgive each other of their sins. Just as God in Christ also forgave you. Did Christ unconditionally forgive you? No. You had to repent and ask for it, right? So how do you forgive others? Ephesians 4.32, you do the same way. The church is reversing these. Love is conditional. I don't like you. I'm not talking to you. I'm going to treat you with an attitude. I'm going to conditionally love you. When you treat me nice, then I'll love you back. And then we turn around and unconditionally forgive. This is astounding how we can reverse these. We walk around and tell people we forgive them when they've never asked for forgiveness. It's conditioned upon repentance. So I can love my boss, but I can tell her that I don't accept her behavior. I can love her unconditionally, but never will I forgive her for what she's done or anyone else who's committed sins. We tell unbelievers this. Don't walk up to an unbeliever. God forgives you. He loves you and he forgives you. What have I done? You're a mass murderer. He forgives you. Oh, I like killing them all, but that's okay. That's all right. You like killing them all. God still forgives you. There's Christians that do this. What a mess. You're not forgiven unless you repent. This is the condition. You want God to work in your life, you better repent as a believer. Or the mercy glass is running out, and remember, what happens when mercy runs out? If you have an unforgiving heart, or you aren't repenting of your sin the way you should, then mercy is running out on you, and what is being replaced is chastisement. It's rolling thunder in your life. It begins with loss of assurance and ends with execution. It'll take your life, and it's quicker and sooner than slower and later. Dying from old age is not divine chastisement for rebellion, as we've talked about. So there it is. There's the condition. And how do we show mercy to others? We forgive them when they ask for it. We love them unconditionally, whether they ask for forgiveness or not. And when you love your enemies and you love somebody unconditionally, that means you treat them as if they've never sinned. That's what love is. You don't pull an attitude. You love them and give to them like they've never sinned. Isn't that what Jesus loved the world? It's a love like they've never sinned, but we have sinned. But God won't forgive the whole world unless they repent. So when we sin against each other, we don't forgive each other of that. We say, I love you, but I'm not forgiving you. Oh, you treat me so kindly. That must mean you accept my sin. No, it does not mean I accept your sin. It just means I'm called to love you as my enemy, which means I'm to give towards you as Christ gave to the world. He gave unconditionally, so I love you unconditionally, but I'm telling you right now, I'm never going to forgive you until you repent. Because that's what God did for us. Mercy is shown through 
Forgiveness, write it under letter B, and with that we conclude. As you receive forgiveness, you offer to others. And mercy is shown through love towards others. When you reverse those and get those confused, you end up a nasty Christian at church. You excuse sin with unconditional forgiveness, and you pull attitudes and create factions and separation through conditional love. You become a nasty Christian. A nasty Christian at church is one who conditionally loves and then compromises holiness by forgiving unconditionally. I'm sorry that I did that to you. Ah, forget it. That's, that's unconditional forgiveness. You're not supposed to do that. Someone comes up and says, I sinned against you. Will you please forgive me? Ah, oh, forget it. I love you. That's terrible. If somebody asks your forgiveness, what should you say? I forgive you. See? And if somebody comes up to you and says, I've sinned against you, I know. And that's why I've refused to come over to your house for five years. Because I am conditionally loving you. What a mess. This is the perversion of mercy. Love unconditionally. It's not fake. You can give towards people that have sinned greatly against you. And then you forgive conditionally. Time does not heal sins. There is no restitution and reconciliation with sinning believers unless they repent. Father, thank you for your word. Clear as a bell. Now the issue is whether we'll obey it or not. Help us to obey in Jesus' name. Amen.